Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be covering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week, we take our news stories that we cover here in question format, uh, like Jeopardy. Uh, We do those in question format. We take those from our newsletter that comes out Mondays on Every week, 9 a.m. Eastern, uh, comes out in a, n- a couple of different formats. I'm dropping the link to the uh, our website for smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. Also putting in the link for our uh, newsletter, this week's newsletter itself, so you can have the har- uh, a soft copy of it if you choose. And then we'll also put uh, in uh, some information on our um, on our LinkedIn version of our newsletter in case you prefer to get your international ed news that way. So if you are already subscribed or one of the over 950 subscribers to the newsletter, we're grateful that you're part of that journey and in helping you kind of get your heads around in a digestible format, uh, the international ed stories of the week. Uh, also cover social media stories in there and oftentimes where those overlap. In fact, one of our first question today, we'll be covering a social media related story to international education. So we'll talk about that as we go through the day. And as we do each week, uh, we uh, answer questions that are popular, I'm seeing themes develop around in the news, in the international ed news space. I'm talking here about uh, all the Google alerts I get, all the various news sources like the Pi, Inside Higher Ed, Times Higher Ed, all the other sources out there, University World News, that often focus on international ed issues. So we're going to cover uh, three questions today. First up is, what is the future of TikTok for U.S. universities? Now, for many of us, TikTok is something that, oh, that's what the kids kids do are using these days. And yes, it is. And it certainly has grown with over a billion users uh, globally now. Uh, we've all seen uh, how significant uh, these uh, this platform has become to uh, to students uh, to, to the youth uh, any anyone above 13 years old can get on there have their own profile and uh, it really is uh, the the platform in the in vogue platform and has been for a couple of years now in terms of uh, strongest growth in terms of global uh, appeal and of course in the in the eyes of uh, the youth of the world in our college age demographic that we're often targeting uh, that's where they're spending their time and we've seen a future uh, we've seen numbers of stories on how students are getting college students uh, prospective university level students are getting more and more their information uh, from TikTok, they're doing searches uh, for institutions on on TikTok, and that, is that a scary thing or not? Uh, so let's uh, let's talk about that. It's been a platform that has uh, raised a lot of eyebrows, certainly in political circles, uh, due to uh, obviously the company, uh, the parent company of TikTok, ByteDance, is a, a Chinese-owned company and has um, ties to the Communist Party and the government there. And certainly anybody who's on ByteDance uh, in China, their data um, or the, the version of TikTok uh, in China. Uh, the home com- the home nation uh, version of it, uh, they uh, your ad data is fully accessible by the government and can be manipulated and used for uh, whatever purposes the government has in terms of censorship, in terms of uh, tooling information specific to you, uh, potentially uh, using that to uh, to track people down and uh, do all sorts of things that 
uh, in most other countries isn't uh, really uh, acceptable. But uh, the use of that data has, has uh, raised concerns and how who has access to that data for TikTok users, particularly those in the United States. We've had U.S. political uh, representatives uh, put up bills over the last couple of years uh, asking that TikTok be banned, uh, that uh, recent bills are, are prohibiting uh, U.S. government agencies for use, from using TikTok. Uh, our friends at the State Department have yet to get on, on TikTok talk as part of their social media outreach because primarily because of those political concerns. Uh, there is a growing uh, trend, uh, not only in U U.S. government circles, uh, particularly members of Congress, uh, even bipartisan bills have been introduced to address uh, the concerns over TikTok and security of user data and how that could potentially, if it fell into the fell into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party and the government there, whether or not that could be used against the United States. And there's reasons for concern. Obviously, whenever user data is concerned and uh, and potential nefarious users uh, uses for that data by uh, uh, by third parties, uh, including governments of other countries. So you wonder uh, about long-term future uh, of TikTok. Uh, there was even a story out this week. Uh, I put the link to the CNN story that was the main reason for uh, this question today. Uh, is uh, related to uh, the article that I'm sharing is related to U.S. lawmakers introducing a bill to ban TikTok, and that is a that's a bipartisan group um, led by Senator Marco Rubio and a uh, pair of bipartisan pair of congressmen in the House. A similar bill there uh, that would. Um, uh, this kind of reflects, uh, would block uh, and prohibit, this is the legislation, would block and prohibit all transactions in the United States by social media companies with at least 1 million monthly users that are based in or under the substantial influence of countries that are considered foreign adversaries and included in the, on that list, China, v Russia, Iran, North Korea, North Korea, Cuba, and Venezuela. So the usual suspects on the uh, countries that hate us list. Uh, so in terms of China, obviously the focus is on TikTok. It doesn't, it does, the bill specifically names TikTok and its parent company ByteDance as uh, those, those particular companies that meet those criteria in China. Uh, that uh, there are also a, a series of governors, particularly Republican governors, have introduced state level restrictions on the use of TikTok on government owned devices and uh, including uh, seven states introduced such legislations, including Maryland, South Dakota, and Utah. And we'll talk about the South Dakota one because that's the particular reason for this question. And the, the question that uh, uh, we ask is, is what's the impact of, uh, of these, these legis this, this legislation and others, other statewide measures against TikTok? So we'll see what that looks like. Uh, moving forward, but uh, this national uh, national bill uh, that Senator Rubio introduced, if it were to see the light of day and was were, was voted up, uh, voted on, and voted approved in any way, uh, it could potentially mean that uh, other companies like Vicontacte, uh, which is uh, heavily uh, as Russian language and Russian owned, uh, could be potentially uh, another target of uh, this legislation. So billing, and again, the, the bill that Rubio introduced would ban, block and prohibit all transactions 
in the United States by social media companies. So the transactions, what that means specifically, I don't think that is necessarily well defined yet. Um, so it's it's uh, uh, there's still some still some uh, thought on thought that uh, details that need to be shared on that in that respect. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, the p other piece about uh, how it impacts universities. Obviously, universities, including uh, my own, UNLV, have had active TikTok accounts for the past several months. Uh, they have uh, at UNLV, for example, there's both uh, uh, UNLV kind of campus-wide, uh, brand-wide, UN branded UNLV official account, and there's also an Office of Admissions uh, Twitter uh, UNL, uh TikTok team, so that uh, have uh, seen relative success in in their in the first few months and building a following and, and such. Uh, certainly, uh, there's a lot of uh, interest that has been raised uh, in terms of as seeing TikTok as a, a useful platform to uh, to connect with current student or to prospective students and to share with current students what some of the activities are going on are, some of the thoughts of the day kind of stuff, interacting with campus officials, all of that. Uh, what one state uh, is no longer able to do that for our public institutions in that state, and that's South Dakota. Uh, their governor, uh, Christy Nome, uh, announced by executive order on November 29th that uh, that the Board of Regents uh, supports uh, uh, the ban uh, f that uh, Governor Nome put in place. Uh, that uh, our, uh, basically was presenting public institutions would have to delete, if they had any in South Dakota, would have to delete any TikTok accounts they currently operate. Uh, and the, that's the Board of Regents Director Brian Maher, Maher said uh, that they support the governor's ban and our universities are not to use TikTok for university marketing and communications. So uh, if this uh, trend spreads, uh, if it's uh, going to be uh, exclusively within uh, red states, then that's, uh, that's one issue. Uh, but certainly uh, if that, I don't know if that's going to go nationwide, certainly any national legislation would supersede. Uh, what, uh, what individual states would do, uh, or complement in this case, if anything were to, were, were to be passed nationally that would uh, affect TikTok's ability to operate in the country. Uh, and that might be, make this, this executive order moot if, uh, if uh, no longer uh, operating in the country, then that would uh, prevent, obviously, uh, the universities from using it. So uh, the question will remain, and there's another article I've just uh, have tapped in for my newsletter next week that asks the question, is too, TikTok too big to ban? So we'll see whether that happens. But uh, we do know that TikTok is not uh, universally loved. Uh, certainly in India, it's been banned for well over a year. Uh, and has not, uh, it is not accessible for uh, people in that country who don't have VP VPNs to access. So this is, this is a potential issue that could, could expand uh, depending on what way the wind blows with uh, politics in China. Uh, certainly there's a, that antagonism that exists between India and China over a number of different banned apps. Uh, there, TikTok's one of over uh, several dozen that are banned by uh, the Indian government from operating within India. So We'll see what this happens, but TikTok could potentially be an area that uh, uh, certainly at, at the private university level, you probably if you are on it, you'd probably still be able to do it. Uh, the uh, if unless unless the national uh, there's a national ban on TikTok's ability to operate in the United States, so we'll see whether that's even possible. It's certainly raising the issue of data security and personal data that's and who has access to it, because that is really one of the concerns. Whether uh, 
folks in China and the government would have access to U.S. user data, um, potentially use it against us. So if that was a, if that was a fear, so that's uh, that's those are conversations that are happening in the halls of government and ones we certainly need to be aware of, uh, and that's. Uh, kind of a tough place to start a conversation this week but it's it's one that does does require us to be a little bit more circumspect about our choices on social media or you always think about that uh, and what you post and when you post and how you post we always talk about those kind of details for a social media strategy but when it comes to selecting platforms that's certainly one thing that you you do want to focus on and when it's information that is uh, that is student focused uh, when it's uh, providing information that would help them identify what it could potentially produce is a vacuum where uh, U.S. institutions that might have ordinarily started to use TikTok to reach out to prospective students would not have that ability, particularly internationally. Uh, that, potent, that potentially puts you at, uh, our institutions at a disadvantage if that ever were to happen where we wouldn't be able to use that platform uh, in a recruiting space or a marketing and communication space. So we'll see uh, what the future holds, but uh, the, it's delicately poised right now uh, as to which way the wind will blow on this one, but uh, there's certainly some rumblings that uh, action could be taken, so we'll see what happens. So let's move on to our second question of the day, and it is, what do new international student surveys tell us? Now, every time one of these surveys comes out from one of the major vendors, I'm always not, I'm not suspect, I used to work for a couple of them, but uh, one of these, uh, these reports that come out, uh, one by IDP and one by uh, QS, I'm going to drop the links to both. So if you want to, if you're not already on their mailing list and you'd like to get their information uh, or get the data reports from these uh, two surveys, you're going to have to fill out your information. Uh, so I'm going to drop that, those links into the chat. I'll be sharing some of the results of those since I'm I'm on already part of their get on their mailing list. I get this information. I get those those email fill out your information to get the survey results. Then you do that and you're on their mailing list forever until you opt out. But uh, some of the data that's come out is uh, particularly relevant as it reflects how and why and where we should be recruiting and what our messaging should be, frankly, to prospective student audiences. Uh, the topics of the of the surveys are, are fairly different. Uh, the IDP one focuses on uh, diverse markets and, and particularly is a U.S.-focused uh, report from, from IDP Connect. And it focuses on uh, their students that they've interviewed and to find out where the spikes in interest to the U.S. are popping up in their data uh, that they're seeing in terms of their reports and usage of their sites. Uh, they have well over 100 million students on their sites every year from around the world. Uh, and then the QS report is actually a monster survey. Well over 100,000 uh, students were surveyed, prospective students surveyed, from a number on a number of different issues from uh, themes that they want to hear from universities about uh, and other topics that we'll talk about in a minute. So I'll run through a couple of the results of, the, of these surveys to, so that you, you can kind of put them away and, and uh, store them for another day. Uh, the, the links to them are, I'll be sh uh, I've shared to where you can email inquiry forms and I'll be also just talking through some of, the, some of these reports. Now let's start with the QS report. 
And that is one that showcases their report data had 110,000 responses, 94 institutions participated, uh, 194 countries and territories represented. So a pretty broad demographic swath of the world is covered in this, uh, in this report. And the key findings uh, are, and recommendations, I should say, uh, from this survey are what I'll share with you today. Uh, first one is showcasing environmental impact and social responsibilities uh, to students. So the, the thought here is that universities can and should do more to demonstrate their commitment to environmental, social, and government strategies to students to show where you are related to, uh, for example, divestment from companies that do business in China that are impacting uh, Uyghur populations in Shenzhen province, for example. Uh, there's been divestment movements in the United States uh, among board of directors of, uh, uh, across universities, particularly the, some of the elite privates. So we'll see if this, uh, if that makes, if that's part of how you're showcasing your relevant uh, relevant in that area, uh, if there's particular environmental measures that you've taken on campus in terms of recycling, in terms of uh, uh, carbon neutral uh, emissions, uh, uh, carbon offsets for travel, if, if your institution is doing anything like that, that might be part of uh, messaging you want to include to, um, to your prospective students because they have uh, these issues on their mind and they want to hear about that. Uh, social responsibility issues, diversity issues, all of these things that are, uh, are, 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 are important uh, for in the minds of prospective students. There's uh, increasing relevance from the survey data that QS produces that says that these might be good things for you to communicate directly to your prospects about what you're doing to address as an institution to address these societal issues. So a thought. Second is uh, Adopting a hybrid approach, and this is an interesting one because uh, we know since the pandemic started uh, in the U.S., there's been an exemption for international students enrolled in the in U.S. schools as F1 students to the traditional limit of one online class per academic term. That as long as there was at least one for those that were already enrolled that had to go home and that could, they could be enrolled. Uh, uh, fully online that was allowed. Uh, there's also uh, been that exemption that there at least be some hybrid elements to classes that they're taking uh, even into this academic year 22-23. So those have been allowed by CIS uh, and DHS uh, by their uh, as the mothership for all international student uh, rights and privileges and, and requirements uh, that uh, is housed within uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, in terms of this thought, adopting a hybrid approach, the, the thought is universities should ensure that forms of online learning continue to be available to international students beyond the concerns and restrictions in place as a result of the pandemic. So that is what students are seeking, uh, that kind of flexibility of programming. And the hope is that our immigration regulations, and uh, particularly within DHS, catch up with this new reality that uh, has uh, has affected all our campuses, we all know that our fun that how education is done on campus, how classes are taught on campus, fundamentally changed during the pandemic. There was the initial rush where everything had to be done online, but then there was at some soul searching and assessment of is this the right way to continue to do uh, large lecture classes uh, for introduction uh, entry level basic 101 classes in biology. Uh, 
chemistry, sciences, history, uh, all those intro classes that typically have led to uh, were led to these large lecture halls and prevented and had already had issues with uh, student learning and access and all of that. So. We fundamentally changed that at UNLV's campus. Now, fully 30, well over 30% of our classes are either online or hybrid. Uh, that uh, I think that may be even be closer to 40%. But the the reality is, uh, if the regulations aren't changed, whenever that grace period that we're in ends, and we go back to the existing regulations requirement of one only one class online per term. Uh, we need to have uh, either we'll get into a, a situation where degrees that have shifted entirely online will be inaccessible to international students without a change in the regulations or allowance for hybrid in uh, in most or all of their classes. Uh, that is going to be a, a bridge that if we have to cross that without the right answers for prospective students, that's going to be a bigger issue. But so this is this is one that students are asking about. They want this flexibility in their educational delivery and how they take classes. So whether institutions will be able to uh, honor that is is going to be dependent not on what they individually want to do, but whether the immigration regulations will allow them to do that after this grace period we're in uh, expires uh, without change in regulations. Uh, that uh, third recommendation is that we should be continue to diversify, continuing to diversify our student recruitment. That we should tailor recruitment strategies to meet the needs and expectations of different target markets. And this is something we talk about regularly here on the Roundup. Uh, how important it is to have different messaging for different markets and to be able to not have all your eggs in the India and China basket. Uh, and that's something that is is going to be important next step for uh, many institutions that are looking to grow, um, because in, India certainly shows no signs of slowing down. In fact, uh, the, the growth that we're going to be seeing from India is going to be uh, significant in the next few years, even at the undergraduate level. But what we uh, don't know is where the next uh, India or China is going to come from, and there isn't going to be one of those two. There isn't another one population-wise that's even going to come anywhere close to them. But there are other markets that have grown and significantly are growing, and we'll talk about that more in the uh, IDP report. But uh, that is something that we need to, uh, where we need to be addressing markets, uh, issues that are relevant to particular markets. Uh, Particularly in China, the safety question is going to be significant, uh, and health and health safety and public safety uh, is is also are parts of that answer to the to the question uh, that need to be addressed in all over, uh, all over in China and other countries. Now, a fourth recommendation is that we sh we're, we should be ensuring that we're connecting with all key influencers, and and that means from this this report that universities must not only communicate with the the prospective student but with other key players influential in the decision making progress process. So obviously, parents are going to be key in this in this uh, conversation. Having a parent strategy is important, and so that's reflected in in this, some of the survey responses. But also something for their if they have a college counselor. Uh, for, uh, or university, uh, whoever, uh, university counselors that they might have that are helping them in their journey. So that's, uh, those are some of the top line recommendations uh, from the QS data. Uh, and in terms of, uh, there, and there's, a, there's sections on how that, they, how that they can, how universities can do all of these things. For example, in the social and environmental responsibilities, 55% uh, of students suggested that candidates believe a welcoming environment for international students is important uh, to them when choosing a country to study, uh, that 84% of candidates believes that universities are either very or somewhat environmentally friendly, so you want to show that some way or another, 
that uh, 78% candidates think uh, institutions could be doing more to protect the environment. And 63% agree uh, it's extremely or very important for universities to provide support for mental well-being. So that, those are obviously key findings that we see, we've seen reflected over, over the pandemic, uh, particularly on the mental health side. Uh, we've seen how significant the challenges have been uh, for students, that, not just uh, international students, domestic students as well, uh, significant challenges that they've had uh, with uh, mental health in, as it re reflects on their ability to continue to do well and attend classes and succeed in their in their chosen major and field. So some really uh, solid data coming out of there and just those good reminders for how we should be focusing our messaging in terms of uh, per prospective student uh, recruitment. So uh, that might be an area where you might be a little weak in, where you might not be focusing on environmental responsibility or social responsibility, what your institution has been doing. Uh, international students want to see that. I think domestic students want to see that too, how you're responding to the societal issues of the day. So are you doing it? And if not, it might be time to start including some of the, uh, some messages specifically addressing those concerns, particularly at the inquiry stage, and get them excited about uh, where you stand on these things, on these various issues. Now, let's shift gears to the IDP report, uh, which is specific to the U.S. market, which is nice, obviously, for this audience that we're talking about here, uh, the, our regular uh, watchers of the Roundup or listeners uh, to our podcast. Uh, you always want to know uh, where, what are the new markets I need to be aware of, uh, where should I be uh, starting to focus some energy and effort on, uh, and that's, that's all rel relatively important information as uh, international student recruitment and admissions folks uh, need to be aware of. So uh, according to IQ Demand, and IQ Demand is sort of IDP's uh, version of um, tracking the, their student interest in certain markets, certain majors that they get and see regularly on their site. They also make the point in, in pre presenting this data that the students that are uh, that we're capturing these uh, these data points in for this for this survey uh, that they're reflecting kind of top of the funnel uh, interest at this point, and that's roughly 12 to 18 months out. Uh, before students make their study abroad decisions. So uh, knowing where that interest is spiking around the world is can help you uh, kind of get ahead of the curve a little bit to make sure that you're ready for potential increases in certain markets. So, and potential areas that in the next year you want to be getting to for recruitment travel uh, or in country representation, whatever, whatever it, uh, which way, whichever way you choose uh, to make uh, your recruitment dreams happen. But uh, what they have is a top 10 list of countries that had the most demand for the U.S. in the August-September period this, this past fall. Uh, Brazil was number one, 13% up. Turkey, 8.5% up. Mexico, almost 7%. Vietnam, 5%. Thailand, 5%. Indonesia, 4.5%. Saudi Arabia, 3.65%. Colombia, 3.4%. Nigeria, 32 And Peru, 3.1%. So all countries that have seen spikes in demand for the U.S. Uh, uh, on the IDP sites. And again, 100 million students around the world are using IDP sites every year. So that's uh, a good starting point there for where uh, the demand is for U.S. higher education in terms of interest in studying abroad, studying here. So uh, Brazil kind of obviously jumps off the page. That's the highest, highest growth rate there at 13%. 
So many of us are already beginning to focus on Latin America, uh, and that uh, is is important uh, important area, particularly for my institution in the southwest of the United States, with huge Hispanic populations already in the area, a lot of immigrant history from that re from Latin America to us. So that's been an area that we're going to be developing significant relationships on. Uh, we have focused on. Uh, virtual fairs for the last year and a half in Latin America as our primary tool. Uh, we've attended a couple of conferences, particularly the Education USA uh, Regional Forum for the Western Hemisphere uh, to connect with advisors there, many of which, in particularly Brazil, are also working at universities, so they have dual roles there. Uh, so we're going to be investing heavily in there. In that country, also Mexico, with uh, other other uh, a Mexican version of NAFSA that we, we attended in October. So that's a focus for us, and probably is Latin America for a number of other uh, colleagues that are, are watching this or listening on repeat. Um, what uh, I will say is uh, what I found in uh, in particular with this IDP report is that uh, in terms where the growth is, uh, we see uh, in the past year uh, we've seen Vietnam spike up significantly, which is great. Uh, enrollments from Vietnam and the uh, UAE grew by 75 and 60 percent respectively through IDP. Uh, that's IDP enrollments at U.S. institutions. Uh, so uh, that those are two, two countries that they're seeing significant growth in, in terms of sending students to the U.S. Cambodia uh, increased 130 percent. Taiwan was up 34 uh, percent and Bangladesh 16 percent in terms of where placements have happened in the last year from IDP. So uh, those are the markets where they're seeing the biggest growth right now. Uh, from IDP. If you're an IDP client, we are at UNLV. Uh, we're already starting to see applications coming from some, very very much the same list of countries. So excited to see where that growth takes us in the coming year. But a lot of, uh, lot of uh, ex uh, exciting opportunities to expand where we go and how we get, the, how we get in front of these students. Uh, the, the su subjects that they're studying, uh, the IDP students that uh, they're seeing, they've, they've seen uh, consistent growth in, uh, in the typical STEM fields, in computer math science and engineering and technology, and applied and pure sciences are usually the top three of, three of the top four. Uh, they've also seen significant jumps, 86% jump in business interest, business and administrative studies. So interesting uh, shift in, in non-STEM fields, uh, being actually the largest growth area in this past year for IDP has been in business areas, 86% growth uh, versus only 16% growth for uh, computer and math science. Uh, so that is interesting to see where, where that trend will lead. But some really good data in both of these reports. So I certainly encourage you, if you're not averse to getting on mailing lists and getting useful data that you can, uh, you can then use to help shape your communication strategies, you're going to get a lot of solid data out of this. So definitely check them out. The last uh, topic I'll cover today, as uh, we're getting close to time, is, uh, is one that is important in terms of uh, an issue that's affecting students in various countries around the world. Uh, in Australia, uh, we've, we're sharing a story now that, uh, from Western Australia where the state government is, uh, is actually going to be paying uh, homeowners in the state to house international students. They're going to pay them uh, just under $300 a week to house international students because the housing shortage is so bad uh, in Western Australia. And it's not, I think they're not the only part of Australia that's suffering under housing shortage. Uh, but we can also go to, uh, to Cap, 
Uh, there's even talk in the UK of uh, calls to cap student numbers. We all know that UK came out of the pandemic probably better than any other country in terms of numbers. Uh, that has also led to significant housing issues in the last year and even then again into this fall that are now re uh, re realizing that maybe we can't grow much more. There's, uh, there's calls to cap student numbers as UK housing crisis continues. Now, the cap is coming not from this, this particular call for a cap is coming not from the from the government Sunak government that wants to limit students coming for graduate degree or master's and doctoral programs with all their uh, uh, dependents and spouses with them to and then if that impacting that migration numbers that's not that talking that cap or caps aren't being called for for that group and with this article it's actually about caps because of, there simply isn't the housing to help all of these students international students that now want to come so there are in reality a lot of physical limitations to what institutions can and can't do and the a solution in Western Australia is pretty pretty significant that the government is actually funding uh, our help funding uh, the housing for these students uh, and the government's going to pay for that the state government's going to pay for that so we'll be interested to see if how, how housing shortages are are dealt with on other campuses uh, we're going to with our growth plans at UNLV we will be facing a significant housing challenge in in, in, in the coming years if we don't build, uh, uh, renovate old buildings and, and convert them, buy properties and uh, uh, renovate for housing, that's going to be an issue for us. And any institution uh, around the country that's looking to grow will probably be facing similar challenges. So we'll see where this all takes us in the, in the coming years. But I appreciate everybody joining in today for the Midweek Roundup. And do tune in again next uh, next time. We will be having a, a separate uh, Midweek Roundup on the 28th. So uh, if you're home watching uh, or at work uh, next week, uh, I'll be there to keep you company on Wednesday, 1 p.m. Eastern time. So thanks, everybody, for joining. And do have a great rest of your day. Cheers.